Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Alice, uh, welcome to the Arate podcast. I know we've been talking about doing this, it feels like, for a few years, but it's uh, good to finally do this uh, whilst we're sitting here in lockdown in Brisbane, right at the end of winter. What's been uh, happening in your world? Well, of course, COVID's been happening and enabling a, a whole workforce that we have at True to both be in clinics covering PPE, but also uh, turning their hand to another way of working remotely and producing incredible online content. So our executive team's been working super hard to make that change. So just to backtrack, I am CEO of True Relationships and Reproductive Health, which grew from the Family Planning Queensland iconic organisation of 1972. Mm -hmm. So um, you've been in that role for a few years now? Yeah, it's seven, seven, getting heading wow. towards eight. Yes, it has been a while and it's okay. been a great ride. And, uh, and so, you know, give uh, us a sense of, you know, what's the mission of the organisation and the sort of size of the business in, in terms of headcount or, you know, uh, the sort of geographical operations or what have you. So True's focus is reproductive sexual health and respectful relationships for all. And our mandate is statewide. So we have a statewide clinical service, but our education has an even broader reach. So we are working across um, different states in Australia, particularly around child protection areas and our traffic lights um, program. Mm -hmm. And then of course we have a counseling service as well, which is more based in the Cairns region for adults and young people. Okay. And so is there a true New South Wales and a true Victoria? Is it that type of organisation or are they quite separate organisations elsewhere? They're very separate organisations. So they are Family Planning New South Wales and Family Planning Victoria. Right. All of us uh, work together and on a board for the Family Planning Alliance Australia. And that is an organisation that's really focused on policy and advocacy mm -hmm. at a national level. Okay, okay, great. And I imagine that the, uh, the business has been through a number of iterations in the seven years that you've been there. But rather than get into that now, Let's go back and sort of have a bit of a talk about your earlier career and then we can talk more about True. So um, uh, tell us, Alice, uh, you know, where were you born? You know, tell us about mum and dad and brothers and sisters and, you know, your early life, that would be great. Right, I grew up in St George in southwest Queensland uh, on a lovely property and I am number six of seven sisters. Wow. Um, fortunately, I had a dad who absolutely expected his daughters would be able to stand on their own two feet and have an education. So we all went off to boarding school. Yeah. And many of us on to university. Right. And there weren't any sort of need for feminist rights. We were all equal in our family. Right. But there were 23 years from the seventh to the first. Okay. So even in the sisterhood, there was quite a span of generations. Right. My mum was the same. She was uh, number eight. I, and six sisters and one brother. So 
uh, was it a case of your dad was saying, come on, I've got to have a son sooner or later, or was it uh, he delighted to have uh, a tribe of women to tell him what to do? I think the latter. But of course he would have liked a boy, but no doubt about that. Right. And so they, they were they were on the land farming? Yes. So he was a, a partner in a, a prophet, the Evans Brothers Properties. Um, and you'll notice that I still go under the name Evans. When I right. was 13, my dad passed away. And that, I suppose, was a, a fairly uh, turning point in our life out there mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. really tough for mum she was at home I was at boarding school and she had my little sister who was only six still living okay. at home with her right and where was boarding school Clayfield College in Brisbane uh, okay so uh, uh, were you um, going home sort of on the school holidays or uh, was it that kind of setup absolutely but the, the really fun part about going home in those days we had this little tiny like uh, airplanes that used to fly out to St George. Right. And if you were lucky, you'd get to sit in the co-pilot seat. And if you're even luckier, you'd get to play with the plane for a bit on the way home. <laughs> Nothing like that would happen today. <laughs> what were they? What they used to let the milk run? Yeah. Well, after we got over the range, he'd he'd let us uh, fly it. A little right. Bit. Wow. Gosh. Yes. Yeah. I think. Uh, their insurance wouldn't cover that anymore. Oh, absolutely not. We used to take home, you know, chickens and all sorts of things that we okay. collected from school. Back okay. to the property. Uh, cool. And so when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I was interested in, uh, in a health career. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, I did apply for medicine and got in in Sydney. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my sisters actually was dying of cancer. Um, so I made a decision that it was probably better to stay in Brisbane and close to my mum who'd now mm -hmm. moved to Brisbane and to support the family. So I chose physiotherapy and I got mm -hmm. at UQ. Okay. And, um, and whilst you were sort of going through uni and perhaps even in high school, did you have a part-time job or anything like that? Yeah, I did actually. I worked in the restaurants in St. Lucia, just down from UQ. There was right. a great little pizza place there called Peppy. So oh, yeah. I worked in that for, for many years. Uh -huh. and, and also did some, you know, accounting service, reception work and things like that along the way. Okay. But the goal was uh, to become a physiotherapist and pursue, uh, you know, that kind of clinician type career. Yes, and I was pretty keen to ultimately work in private practice. Right. And I did reach that dream, um, and we, together with my partner, we owned three clinics at one point. Okay. That was fairly early in the career, but it certainly gave a taste of the business world. Mm -hmm. And all that that brings and all of the complexities, being a clinician is not, at that point, is just not about providing the clinical service, but also making sure you're delighting your customers and you're mm -hmm. meeting with other stakeholders and you're ensuring your referrals, just like mm -hmm. any other business. Mm -hmm. And so in total, how long were you working um, uh, in your physio career before moving into a corporate uh, career? It's a little, um, it's a bit more morphed than that because from being a clinical practicing physio, I also worked in uh, insurance and in Commonwealth Rehab Services. So mm -hmm. whilst I was not necessarily um, delivering clinical services, I was overseeing the clinical teams. Okay. So quite, you know, quite probably a good 15, 20 years before mm -hmm. I completely um, moved out of that. Mm -hmm. 
And at what point during that period, I know, and you'll share the story because it's quite an interesting and fun one about how you, you know, joined a mining equipment business or a technology company. But uh, before we get there, what, you know, at what point do you think it became embryonic and you are, oh, you know, I might be interested in going and doing something you know, pretty radically different? I, th I think it was the excitement of hearing about another venture and realising that certainly inside of me, I wanted to be, be part of something uh, bigger or to be able to have a greater influence in some way mm -hmm. on the direction of value, producing value for others. So was that something that you started to think about and then an offer came to you or did an offer come to you and you then you went, oh, that could be interesting and you started to you know, put your attention on it? I was always looking out for other opportunities and different ways of taking a career. Mm -hmm. But as it panned out, um, I was working as a physio when I met someone who had a start-up. Okay. And the conversations that happened from there over a long period of time, because it was quite a, uh, a challenging um, accident that the person had had. Mm -hmm. But it was through that that I, we, our focus in all of the sessions became the business that he was right. in. Yeah. And what could we do with that? Okay. And then eventually one day he said, well, instead of... Uh, telling me what to do. Why don't you come and help? And so uh, so he has some kind of requirement for physiotherapy services. He becomes your patient or your client. And over the course of you, you know, looking after his health, um, you just start to sort of, what, um, uh, offer some advice or just kind of chew the fat or, you know, it seems very unconventional uh, how you moved into uh the business, which we'll talk about in a second, but uh, you know, how did how did it come about? Well, initially, I I thought it was uh, more of a more of a joke, but right. um, it wasn't, and so it was a formal application process, and he certainly was not part of that. So I was interviewed by other executives in the business, mm -hmm. and the concept was to provide strategic HR and occupational health and safety. Now, the latter I was well accustomed to in terms of being able to deliver those sorts of services as a consultant into businesses to the likes of Qantas and, and those sort of organisations. Mm -hmm. But the former, I hadn't had any formal training in, although I had set up my own business in the past and been very aligned with HR practices within some of the other bigger organisations like Commonwealth Rehab Services and WorkCover. Mm -hmm. So... To do that, I felt, you know, an absolute responsibility to add some of the theoretical knowledge to my um, training. So I embarked on a graduate certificate of executive leadership with UQ mm -hmm. and commenced that as a course of study with the Strategic HR program. Mm -hmm. I remember that first assignment, Richard, I think, oh, my goodness, how do I do this? <laughs> you know, it was... It was uh. Uh, those horror yeah. memories of going to university and doing exams and assignments, uh, I remember them so well. And so, yeah, that's one of the questions I was going to ask. You know, once it became an actual, real, tangible opportunity, um, you obviously did some, you know, uh, naval gazing and said, well, if I want to make the best of this, I'm going to have to go and get some formal education. What, what, what you know, if you had any fears at the time about, 
whether you'd succeed or not? What were the kind of things that you were worried about? Absolutely. Could I add the value that they needed? Right. That was a big one. And yeah. how am I going to make sure I do that? And how am I yeah. going to keep checking in to see if I'm meeting their expectations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of conversations like that along the, along the pathway with mm -hmm. me actually doing that check-in. Okay. Uh, and also, you know, being really focused on what was I learning and how can that be applied in this organisation? Mm -hmm which not only added value to the organisation, but also to the learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so to give people a sort of a bit of a sense about what a quantum sort of leap this was, tell us just briefly about what Ground Probe was at the time. So this was, you know, 2006, and they had been three years from actually incorporating. They'd had only, you know, Three, three or four people at the beginning in 2003 when I joined it in about 2006, there were about 40. Mm -hmm. And they were producing a slope stability radar, which enables understanding in a mining environment around slopes. So if slopes are going to slip or slide and they can see through different weather and dust mm -hmm. and it's real-time monitoring. Mm -hmm. so it was absolute first-to-world revolutionizing slope stability management mm -hmm. so really so fundamentally uh it was some technology to protect the safety of the miners correct and it came out of the uq engineering department and the um the, 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 the i guess the move from there and the rapid growth and the grab the rapid take up by mining companies around the world it was very much a born global Mm -hmm. And it was very much pulled globally by the big mining houses saying, oh, now we want one in Chile, we want mm -hmm. one in South Africa. So it was very rapid expansion, mm -hmm. particularly given the business model around uh, local uh, offices, local service, mm -hmm. not being a, a model where it was um, put through agencies. Mm -hmm. And so you joined the business and during the period that you were there, not only did the business go through some different iterations, but your career also uh, grew and unfolded into other areas as well. So uh, what were some of the other responsibilities you picked up over time? So after the sort of HR and safety, I then took on systems and IT um, mm -hmm. globally. And I guess adding that in as well was another area that I felt like I had to really upskill to be asking the right questions and ensuring we had the team able to deliver on what the needs were as they continued to expand. Mm -hmm. Now you're thinking about an organization that's working on Excel and, and red notebooks. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we need to do to be able to really service the customers around the world? Mm -hmm. So part of that involved the rollout of an ERP system and the choosing of what that would be and the implementation for that, which was pretty massive because but it- Definitely um, not for the faint heart of this, implementing a new ERP. No, no. We went with Microsoft Dynamics and partly uh, because of its um, foreign exchange capability, remembering we were trading globally mm -hmm. and multi-currency and all the different accounting standards, etc. So it, it was a, um, a major project. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened that was pretty major was we grew out of our West End production facility mm -hmm. and we sourced and developed a new production and head office in Brisbane in Windsor. I know. I remember at the time going, oh, this is a bit fancy. <laughs> so that was that was exciting because the 
the agent said, oh, no, the owners won't want that sort mm. of thing on their, on their block. Mm. But after several coffees and a few wines with them, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we all agreed that it was a great idea. Right. Okay. It's a pretty iconic building, actually. Yeah. And so, um, you know, again, at what point was it during your time there that you started to think, hmm, maybe there's something more for me? Um, because you went, again, through a, a quite a significant, you know, um, change, change of role, change of industry. So what started inspiring that for you? I guess I, I did my MBA and I ended up as executive general manager of corporate services, including finance and all the other pieces around the world. And mm -hmm. together with the MBA, that experience made me realise that I could sort of step up and lead an organisation. But I felt that it would probably be good to go back to an area where, where I had the technical skills of, or more competence, and that was in health. Mm -hmm. And that led me to start looking for significant health roles. Mm -hmm. And Family Planning Queensland came up as one of those. Now, one of the really attractive things about that as I started to chat to the board was that it was a, a, a close down or a get go. Right. So it almost was like a startup in a sense. Mm -hmm. It had been around since 1972, but in many, in many ways it had met its mission. So it re needed a really uh, major change in order to continue to attract funding. We certainly needed to be thinking about the clients because we, they seem to be uh, decreasing. Mm -hmm. And the, the mission itself was perhaps not uh, really being delivered on at that point. And GPs at that stage were well capable of doing what the organisation was now doing. Right. Okay, sure. And so when you were offered that role, Alice, welcome to the team. You know, what was the mandate? What were, what, what were you actually employed at that point to deliver? Because once again, that business has substantially changed over the seven or so years that you've been there. So you know, at that initial time when you joined, what, what were they asking you to do for them? To make that, to help them make that decision about can we reshape this to deliver a gap that is really needed in a not-for-profit space, mm -hmm. one that's not competing with GPs, mm -hmm. or do we close it down? Mm -hmm. And so did they put a time frame on that? You know, Alice, we need you to get in, check out the lay of the land, and within six months or court months have made a decision, close or go, or was it a little more open-ended open -ended than that? It was a little bit open-ended, but I produced a plan for them for the first 90 days. Mm -hmm. And... I acted on that and they all got excited with me. Okay. So, so you, part of, you knew within 90 days that we, this is a goer. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One of the really exciting things I think that happened was within two weeks of starting, uh, I was trying to get in touch with the health minister in Queensland and I was told there was a nine month waiting list. Mm -hmm. And this was really, really important because it'd been a bad story in the Courier-Mail um, around family planning Queensland and what the terrible things that the government were doing. So I didn't think the reception was going to be too great, but I right. needed to, to touch base and to share the dream, I guess, of mm -hmm. how we felt that this could go. And so the nine-month thing wasn't going to work for me in my first 90 days. Mm -hmm. So I travelled out to Warwick via one of our clinics in Toowoomba. 
and got a got an appointment within two weeks. And I guess what, what, what's the relevance of Warwick? Because that's where he was a sitting member. Oh, okay, right. To visit him in George Street, I, right. I went to the the local um, office. Well, what they're saying is a kind of a biblical saying: if the if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, Muhammad goes to the mountain. <laughs> it's something like that, isn't it? So you just grab the bull by the horns and you said, "I'm coming to see you, mate." And it, it was um, certainly I was uh, having to apologise in some way, but said that's not what we're building now and to, sh to share that dream of what we could do. Right. We could partner. And within a week, I was working with the senior policy advisor for the health minister on a new direction for the organisation. Okay. From yeah. the back of that, we got a big contract and then have had subsequent even bigger contracts. Okay. So for people who are unfamiliar, when you say we've got a big contract, what, what do you mean by that in terms of the, as it pertains to, you know, what was at the time family planning? Well, you're talking about over 20 million across a four year term. Um, and we're delivering community gynecology services positioned between GPs and hospitals, mm -hmm. as opposed to being a service where people might choose to walk in. So we became a part of the health system and the health pathway mm -hmm. and decreasing outpatient waiting lists was a key part of that. Right. That made it really attractive at the time. Right. So it wasn't as if this was a solution that was provided by somebody and you won the contract. It was more you developed a greenfield uh, opportunity, you know, to, to value add. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely the latter. Right. Uh, Co-creating co a, a, a solution, which was also obviously a solution for our organisation. Mm -hmm. So that was a cornerstone. Once we had that in place, we could really start to grow other areas too. Okay. And then so if we think back, you know, it's been six, seven years, what, what would you sort of describe as some of the, uh, the key milestones in that period? So obviously getting that up and, deliver and getting our staff upskilled to work in that secondary health space was a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, then it was around what is the environment that we're offering our services. So nearly all of our clinics are now refreshed and have a new, complete new image. Mm -hmm. And they're also set up for that secondary health provision. So, you know, the more um, the procedures that you will see in community mm -hmm. gynecology. But perhaps the biggest is that the reach to Queenslanders is now up 38%. So 82% of Queenslanders are within an hour's drive of one of our services. Mm -hmm. So to have uh, achieved that in a state like Queensland is really well respected mm -hmm. and understood. And we've had help with that in terms of checkup, um, which auspices Department of Health federal contracts for rural and remote uh, health services. And this one is particularly focused on women and they have supported us in getting our clinicians out to environments like Dysart, Julia Creek, Richmond, Bargaminda. Mm -hmm. And we have teams traveling out and doing pop-ups or outreach clinics mm -hmm. in these environments and bringing the service close to the community, which again is one of the big mantras in the health world. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure our services are very community-based? Mm -hmm. And I, I can only imagine that an added complexity would be that, you know, people would perceive what you're doing from a certain, uh, you know, they'd have a sort of a, uh, their own beliefs about 
you know, what you, the services you provide. And, and particularly when you're going out into regional Queensland, where I imagine there's a lot of very conservative people, there's some of the stuff that the solutions or that you're offering to women, et cetera. Um, I, do you get much community kind of backlash or is, is there resistance or are you embraced with open arms? Uh, yeah, we're generally embraced with open arms and the feedback we get is incredible. And mm -hmm. we have about 30% of our clients giving feedback every year and mm -hmm. testimonials around the sort of service that they have received. Mm -hmm. And the stories from some of the country, uh, I suppose the country women saying, you know, like I haven't been in to have a well women's check in mm -hmm. nine years because mm -hmm. I can never get away from the property and it's a mm -hmm. nine hour drive. And gee, it's great to have True in town. I'm there in half an hour and back out mustering in the afternoon. Okay. Those sorts of comments that are, yeah. you know, really uh, engendering to the fact that the service is now local. Okay, oh, that's awesome. And so uh, in, uh, before we talk about some of the other sort of pies you've got fingers in in terms of emerging technology and all this cool stuff, how have the, what's, what's changed in the type of um, service delivery that True offers? I mean, um, I imagine that you've broadened your suite of um, services. Uh, uh, you know, what are some of the, the changes that have been made during this period? So certainly in the clinic land, it is about broadening the services. So we mm -hmm. never used to offer gynecology services. It was a GP contraception type service mm -hmm. and medical screening. So now we're up, we're working in areas like menopause, um, colposcopies, which are something that you might need if you've had an abnormal cervical screen. Right. And we're bringing in obstetricians and gynecologists and sexual health physicians into mm -hmm. the business. Mm -hmm. We're trying to provide a, a one-stop shop, a wraparound service for everything to do with reproductive and sexual health. Mm -hmm. So that rather than having to go to be referred by your GP into the hospital and sit on a waiting list for mm -hmm. some period of time, because they're usually not urgent cases, mm -hmm. we can generally see everybody within 14 days. Mm -hmm. and that's what we aim to do. But then I guess the other area to talk about is the, the education. So the education program has really, really grown. So our all school program, which is mapped to the national curr curriculum for prep mm -hmm. to 10 and then the syllabus, Queensland syllabus for 11 and 12, that's now mandated as a, um, a absolute requirement in the curriculum in Queensland. So that is growing as well. So we have a whole team across Queensland working in schools, mm. all developing uh, programs and support for teachers delivering such a program. Mm -hmm. A lot of, to your question before about conservatism, a lot of rural community schools will often want an organisation like us to come in and deliver, uh, simply because the, some of the teachers are in single teacher schools and Sometimes, yes, some of the topic areas, they, they can be a bit contentious for some people. Mm -hmm. It's better to have somebody other than the local teacher teaching it mm -hmm. and Correct. being able to do the follow-up and, and uh, with parents and carers if that may be needed. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, I, uh, I'm 52 and I remember, you know, learning about the birds and the bees at school and uh, <laughs> it would be fair to say that uh, the level of instruction uh, was minimal and... Uh, it was delivered in a highly scientific but not a very practical way. So I think there are a lot of confused young men and women then, whereas I look at my son, who's about to turn 13, and, uh, I mean, you know, he's, he's all over it. He knows exactly what's going on, and uh, 
I, at his age, I wouldn't have even had the first clue. <laughs> so uh, I think that if that's testimony to the fact that you guys are doing a great job, then that's excellent. And what it's so tell you, we have a real focus now on respectful relationships as well. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not just biology. It's really right. about you know understanding and respecting another's view. Yeah. Multicultural health, LGBTIQA plus, you know, the, all of the different sectors and being right. aware of differences and where people may have come from, and therefore, how do we um, share the learnings of you know of today? Mm. It's interesting you you mentioned that. I, I can never remember all of the initials LGBT or whatever. You know, um, I look at my son, and I think for he and his friends. There's just no consideration at all as to whether somebody's gay, straight, they're going through transition. Um, it's it's just they're just people, and and uh, and it's so um, interesting to look at how um, the opinions and the sort of the biases of um, uh, people have changed in what is you know really only one or two generations, um, uh, and so as part of your education when you're, you're talking about those things, you know, I, I'd just be interested in what's some of the sort of the more interesting feedback you get from the school kids. I think what you're saying is correct in that they have a sense of, you know, well, you don't really need to say that mm. because we know it, but then there will be many that don't. So right. it's still very important to go over the content and yeah. to work with them. But we also try to, or we do provide a lot of parent carer resources so that they can understand and continue to have the conversations mm. that we might have started in the classroom. Mm. And likewise with our traffic lights program, actually it's licensed in the UK by an organisation called Brooke. Mm-hmm. But traffic lights is about understanding and responding to child sexual behaviours and development. So how, how does that work practically? So practically, it is a professional development program for teachers, parents, carers, social workers, psychologists, Mm -hmm. so that you can actually understand and have a conversation with a child knowing what would be expected to be in their mind at that age. Okay. And to that, we have an app as well, which Mm -hmm. um, has... It's called traffic lights. It's green, orange, and red. Green is, no, that's a great question. Let's talk a bit more about that. It's an age-appropriate question. Whereas something that might be a red light behaviour, you might need to be investigating, you know, what's happened to this child or why are they acting in this way? Why is this behaviour occurring as it seems not appropriate to that age of that child? And so just to make sure I understand what you're saying, is somebody looking at an app and they're, they're indicating for themselves, am I green, orange or red about a particular issue or is it more an education piece? It's an education piece for okay. parents' carers. It's not for children. Right. It's definitely to enable us all to be more aware right. of child safety. Okay. So I'm at home and, you know, my eight-year-old daughter starts talking about something. I go, oh, it seems a bit weird she's talking about that. I can get on your app and I can work out is what she's talking about actually normal for somebody of her age to talk about. Yeah, that's 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 the concept at a high okay. level. Yeah. And why why delivered in an app format? You know, is it just... it's it's that's just one of the tools. We have booklets, right. we have courses, okay. 
and the team are currently building a whole suite of online oh, yeah. courses. Yeah. So, all yeah, right. looking forward oh, to those out. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. I think that, you know, it's my daughter which, and my son were growing up. Um, the big one we were all encouraged was to make sure we read to our kids. If something like, don't touch my bottom or, uh, you know, the book that I'm referring to? Yes. Right. Everyone's got a bottom. Everyone's got a bottom, right. Okay, yeah. It's one of ours. It's one of yours. Well, I can tell you what, that book uh, got a few uh, read-throughs in the Trinks house of it, for sure. And so, Alice, you know, um, in more recent time, you're starting to get in emerging technology and, you know, differentiating or sort of uh, adding different kinds of, you know, products and so on to your organisation. Some of those have been really quite exciting and groundbreaking. Tell us a bit about that. So Curate Technology was set up as a subsidiary of True, and the first product we brought to the Australian New Zealand market is a watch which is produced in Finland, and it's by a company called Navigil. And it's around the aged care, disability, lone worker sector. So it's a beautiful Swiss-designed analogue watch, mm-hmm. and it's got a very, very good battery life, which um, beats all of the other watches on the market that do something similar and are often digital. Mm-hmm. So it will alarm if the person presses the crown of the watch or if they fall over or if they stop moving, it will automatically alarm. So what does that mean? It can ring up to 10 people who have been predestined in the back end of that to receive the call. It could be family. It could be Richard on Monday, Alice on Tuesday, and the rest of the week goes to a 24-hour nursing support okay. partner. Yeah. So you can do whatever you want with it. It's also mm-hmm. a full mobile phone, so you can ring them and check in on them Right. as well. So it's about keeping um, aged people at home mm-hmm. and safe and home as long as they can rather mm-hmm. than necessarily moving into villages. But we've also got clients in the village area mm-hmm. who want to keep tabs on people living you know, independently in retirement villages. And is it right that it also has a GPS tracker on it? It does. So if you have uh, somebody perhaps with Alzheimer's that might wander, you can uh, agree with okay. it right. to have the tracking on. And so was this an idea that, you know, you just wake up at three o'clock in the morning one day and went, ah, oh, I've got an idea, let's build a watch company. Or, you know, how did that happen? So one of the, um, the dreams was to not necessarily have the, the same fundraising as all of the other or many other not-for-profits, which are mm. things like raffles and events and uh, chasing donations, etc. And, of course, we do some of that. But we wanted to be looking at other ways of doing that. And, and this little business idea came up because we had a general manager, Innovation and Brand, who had known about Navigil and knew that they were in this development mode and were looking for global partners. So we explored that and and after about 18 months of due diligence, we finally decided to proceed. Now I have to say that COVID has played havoc with that. Mm. So I think you're saying from a supply chain perspective. Yeah, supply chain, you know, we can't get, they can't get, uh, can't do their production because they've now moved into the next generation model. And which we need to get in Australia because we're advancing very quickly here mm-hmm. in our in telecommunication area, and they can't get all of their componentry to to do the build. So it's a real challenge right now. 
Mm. And not not asking you to reveal any confidential information. Um, uh, so you can tell me to be quiet if you want to. But when, when you have an idea like that, which is obviously quite uh, separate to the core mission and values or, you know, the purpose of um, true, is the idea that, you know, we want to look at these opportunities to invest, to, to build it and then to sell it, or is it, is it part of true navigating in a new direction and, you know, starting to move away from its core business or, you know, how does it fit in with the overall strategic plan? So it is a complete subsidiary. It fits in under a, stri- a strategic pillar of profit for purpose. Okay. And trying to generate other income. And the constitution supports the... <laughs> There's your dog. Yes, that's my dog barking. You didn't warn me? It's fine. Yeah, I might have to go rescue him. Uh, <laughs> uh, shall we pause? So, so yeah, it's, it, it is in the constitution that if we make money from something else, as long as we apply it back into our mission, which is what we would do. Mm. But at this point, we're not cash positive, so it's not... Um, right. It's not, we're not there. In terms and, of- and, and so we do exploring multiple different ideas or was it wow that one looks good let's you know run that one down uh, the team had been looking for about 18 months and there had yeah. been some other models like the the cafe models that you see in some of the other um, charity sectors but none of them seemed to fit as nicely as this did because it actually had a relationship to sexual violence mm-hmm and uh, line workers which we had going into remote areas Mm -hmm. but particularly in the counseling space where people could be at risk as well like there were a lot of um a lot of overlaps with what we do okay have you thought about have you thought about how you can include include the COVID app on the phone and so you you know you've got a little unique window in the market oh our phone also tells you if you've been in contact with people with corona or not. No, I remember it's a watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, when I say phone, I, I beg your pardon. But I mean, really, a watch is a phone and a phone is a watch. It is, it is. No, we haven't, haven't thought right. that. I mean, a Navigil build. We have talked about creating bracelets or yeah. other uh, things other right. than watches to do the same. Right. Well, I mean, even there's a friend of mine. Uh, who I have lunch with occasionally, he's got this thing, I think it's called a Ura ring, or it just looks like a wedding band, but it monitors his sleep and his heart rate mm-hmm. and this and his that. And uh, this technology is getting so compact, you know, yes. uh, before you know it, we'll be just swallowing a nanobot and uh, it, we, you won't even have it outside or just be swimming around inside telling your computer uh, what's going on. Uh, a brave new world, as they say. And so it's now, um, you know, it's getting towards the end of 2020. Okay, 2020's obviously been an interesting year, but when you look out to the future, what are the things that you're excited about, firstly, for True, and secondly, for your own career? I guess, firstly, for True, it's about the, the complete shift that's happened because of COVID and how much we've been able to deliver online. Okay. how successful that's been yeah. and how the reach is now greater because mm-hmm. of being online. So that's pretty exciting because we can take on potentially new markets uh, for services. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's an interesting play and it might do better than Curate Technology. 
Mm. You know, we look like the partner we have in the UK for traffic lights, but what could we be doing in clinical education mm -hmm. in reproductive sexual health? You know, could we be partnering with Medicine Sans Frontier, for example? Mm -hmm. um, what other opportunities are there that, that we could actually support right. other, other areas? So it's almost as if you're, you've built a distribution model, right? And you're saying, okay, well, currently we're distributing um, you know, sexual health education and sexual health solutions. But we've got this reach now, you know, who else can plug and play in this distribution model that we've set up? Correct. And, and it's certainly we're seeing that. We're seeing right. that in other places. And with telehealth as well, I mean, that opened doors. It got shut a little bit preemptively, I think. Mm. But, you know, if that can be reopened, that's a great opportunity as well for vulnerable mm. populations to access us. Mm. It's interesting because I talk to a lot of CEOs of not-for-profits or profit-for-purpose, and, you know, one glaringly obvious opportunity for them to reduce costs is to share a back-end. So you have an administration team that deliver finance and HR and support services and so on to, you know, True uh, and to St. Vincent de Paul and so on. Um, that seems to kind of people get a bit hot and cold about that. But I hadn't heard anybody previously talk about, you know, utilising your reach and your, your um, the intellectual property you've been able to develop in that space as a go-to-market strategy rather than a recruit reduced back-end cost strategy. I think you need a bit of both. You have to yeah. be thinking about the um, opportunity to share for shared services. And it's certainly mm -hmm. something that I've talked about with other organisations. Mm -hmm. And in some spaces, it's happened a little bit. But predominantly, what has, has occurred through those relationships is an expanded service delivery. Okay. And, you know, the opportunity for us to continue to build uh, outreach clinics or even new big hub centres mm -hmm. will depend on the demand and the, and the relationships we have. Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't own the bricks and mortar in all those rural uh, locations. We mm -hmm. are partnered with generally uh, Queensland health facilities or other community health organisations. Okay. And, uh, you know, in terms of your own career, I mean, you've already had, you know, numerous uh, substantive shifts. You're um, a physiotherapist and then an HR manager and then you're running essentially this mining services business and now you're a CEO of not-for-profit. What's next for Alice Evans? Well, I think that's still to be, um, that part of the chapter is still to be written. I'm still loving being at True. Yeah. And I still think there's more to do there. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, one of my dreams was to work internationally. And I think COVID is, is telling me that that's probably not the best <laughs> idea. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sort of looking to stay here and see how we can do even more with what we've got, but having perhaps a reach into communities that have hard, have a harder time accessing these types mm. of services and be that even into some of the Asian areas. Mm. Well, one thing that, you know, has always impressed me about you is the fact that, um, you know, you're able to take uh, something and morph it into something which is quite, in many respects, radically different. So for a lot of um, uh, senior executives, they think, oh, I've kind of exhausted a you know, my um, uh, ability to add value where I am so I need to move instead of thinking about, well, actually, how can I change where I am in order to add more value? 
and uh and you know certainly the last seven years of um you know being testament to your capability and probably desire to do that yeah well i think lifelong learning too and it's yeah. networks right you, you have to stay connected to other people because you'll often they'll, they might say something about their business and you think no oh, actually mm. i could sort of reshape that mm. and um do something over here with that yeah so look, the ideas it's it's the networks it's the people it's um i guess continuing to test yourself and continuing to want to learn mm -hmm. well, while we're on that alice you know it's a, a little perhaps segue briefly to perhaps be a bit self-serving you know you've been a, a participant in my breakfast of champions you now champions forum in its different iterations over you know some time uh you know i i, I really appreciate it if you could share you know, perhaps some of your experience about that and perhaps some of the, uh, the benefits you've uh, perceived uh, both for yourself and other participants by being involved. The number of times that I've come out of one of those network meetings with your organisation, Richard, are incredible, really. And, and a lot of them ended up in some kind of business for mm. truth. Um, or some other way that we can partner. It might not necessarily be business. So there's a number of areas that I can think of, you know, the Heart Foundation, uh, different insurance companies, uh, mm -hmm. needed services that are a little bit different, organisations that are interested in technology or, you know, um, what, what we're doing in true from learning management system bases or uh, how we're going around importing, exporting, and the, the wealth of information that you get from others mm. in those exchanges helps you question, I suppose, yourself, but also what you're doing and what value you're adding in your business. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly, uh, I've been running these sessions and all of a sudden I'll go, oh, that's a great idea for my business. And I write it down and uh, I kind of sometimes feel as, as if I need to start to pay those people <laughs> some uh, uh, some finance fees or you know idea fees and so on. But I think the other thing that I really love about it is the fact that you know we all think that we've got these unique problems um, uh, that we can't necessarily talk about, and you know it's our problem. Uh, I think one of the ones that's come up recently in quite a number of the uh, forums is you know as we get through this lockdown period. Um, you know, how's that changing the nature of our business and how do we proactively shape culture to make sure that, uh, you know, we continue to maintain culture where a lot of our people who previously weren't working remotely are now working remotely. And so if somebody comes in and they go, oh, I've got this going on and, you know, another CEO says, oh, we've got exactly the same thing in our business and this kind of sharing of ideas, uh, uh, I, I just find it um, uh a fantastic um uh, and in many respects i feel very sort of honored and humbled to sort of facilitate these discussions because uh the brains in the room are just quite incredible and uh so i'm very pleased you're getting some value out of that alice and i know that the people involved are getting a lot of value through your wisdom and insights as well so just to wrap it up from my side you know we've talked a lot about you know your business and your career and so on and so forth but now, tell us about Alice when she's not at work. You know, what do you love to do? Where do you like to go on holidays? You know, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your thing? 
I love being in the outdoors. I love hiking uh, areas where there are not many people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do a lot of uh, kayaking, okay. walking, yeah. but then I also love reading. Right. So it, and that that's a combination of fiction when I really don't want to have to think. Yeah. And then non-fiction, and I read a lot around business um, areas and. One of the books that I remember as sort of in early on was Fifth Discipline, Peter Singing. Yeah. And I have really, you know, I suppose followed some of the things that he suggested around leadership. And mm-hmm. So those are the, that, that's kind of my, my go-to, you know, that, those sort of things when I'm not working. Right. And who's your favourite? I need to escape by reading some, you know, uh, 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 fiction um, to get out of my head. What, what should, what's the genre you like, or what? Who are the authors that you like? Oh, look, multitudes. Um, uh, I couldn't give you one that is going to be a standout because I uh, read. Is it, is it is it trash pulp fiction or is it highbrow? Yeah, it's both actually. <laughs> I'll go. I'll run across the whole lot, but yeah, yeah it's um, it just depends. I think, I think the last one I uh, read was American Dirt. And that's just an easy read, but it's related to um, uh, In the Times of Cholera, Love in the Time of Cholera. It's related oh, to that. Yeah. So it's an amazing story about right. a, a woman escaping out of Mexico to okay. get into the US. So right. like all sorts of things that, um, that I'll pick up and uh, yeah. run with. <laughs> I, I try and be a bit highbrow and say, oh, I'm reading the book of man prize, you know, 2021. And then at the moment, I'm, I'm caught in this vortex of really trashy spy novels. You oh, know, okay. and shoot them up and cloak and dagger stuff. And uh, I read it, I go, oh, Richard, you've got much more intellectual things you could be doing than reading <laughs> this. But there's just a time and a place for escapism, isn't there? There is. So, you know, um, someone like Nicholas Taylor right now is really fascinating to go back and revisit with what's happened with right. him. Okay. What was the black swan that came along in your life? Yeah, right. Wow. So, and he's, he's got a whole series of uh, good books about thinking and thinking okay. about things that, you know, you never thought would happen. What you don't know, you don't know. And those sorts of um, mind-provoking thoughts. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, Alice, before we wrap it up from your side, is there... Anything you'd like to add? Is there any question you thought I'd ask you and you would hope that I would? I think for, I just encourage people to see lifelong learning as something that is their mantra. Mm. Because if you don't continue to grow, um, that's sort of a real omission. And I guess my link with the University of Queensland has been really, really powerful in that, in that I went through my MBA and now became a sort of a, a a lecturer for them in strategy and international business and cross-cultural negotiation. Mm-hmm. And I maintain a, a really strong relationship with a lot of the leaders at, at the UQ Business School because they are also fantastic um, for testing business ideas. Mm. And they also run a lot of programs to take a, a business idea too. Mm. But I encourage others to think about that. You know, they've got MBA programs where you can take a business problem and a, a really great team will spend mm. six months working on it and give you some help. <laughs> mm. Oh, look, on Saturday night, I was having dinner with one of my lecturers in strategy from my MBA QT, and I started to talk about this idea that I have for a, um, 
uh, a not-for-profit to raise money for domestic violence and uh, or for victims of domestic violence, I should say. And, and, uh, and he said, oh, I think that's an awesome idea. Have you thought about this or that or the other? And now, boom, we're on. Uh, so watch this space, Alice. I will definitely uh, be leaning on you for some advice at the right time. <laughs> but I think the other thing, you know, Alice, I'm sure you'd agree is take some risks, right? You know, um, nice. uh, and I think that it's a bit of a um, generalisation to say that a lot of um, female executives might look at a job ad and go, oh, I don't really have, you know, 100% of what they're looking for, so I'm not going to apply. Whereas a lot of guys look at that and go, oh, I've got 20% of what they're looking for, I'm the best candidate. And so, you know, there's, I know from a recruitment point of view, my employer clients are saying to me, we actively want to attract and retain top female talent. But, you know, it's about having the, uh, the you know, um, bravery, right, to go, oh, this one is a little bit outside my comfort zone. I haven't been a CEO before. I haven't worked in a not-for-profit before. But, you know, I'm going to back myself, right? And, uh, I mean, obviously you have somebody, perhaps from when you were brought up by your dad, you know, to, uh, you know you've backed yourself and the, the results are spectacular. The mantra was never give up. Right. <laughs> well, I said that old thing of there's a frog, I think, in some bird's mouth and while he's being slow, he's hanging on for the dear life. Never give up. Oh, that's excellent, Alice. Well, look, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure having a chat to you. And uh, I hope this is just the beginning of your sideline career as a podcaster. <laughs> yes, because I think you've got great stories to share. Thank you very much, Richard. Great having a chat by the fireside. Yes. Have a fantastic <laughs> afternoon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.